Fond du Lac County, November 2008. In the midst of the annual gun deer season, hunters walking along a frozen creek come upon a grisly scene. There before them, a decomposing human body, partly submerged in the frigid winter waters, lay encased in the ice. Authorities called to the scene soon begin the painstaking process of collecting and identifying the female body, as well as solving what to them was an obvious homicide. The mystery of just who the body is takes years to crack and would prove to lead to only more questions when the Fond du Lac County Jane Doe is finally identified. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Bean. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, Thank you everyone for tuning in to this episode 20, 20 of Badger Bazaar. I am your host Scott Whitman along with me, your other host, Mickey Sanders. How you doing, So we are hitting March now. We are into March. Springtime is on the way. The season of awards. We're hitting expo season. We're hitting book festival season. We're hitting Baseball conference season. season but Pitchers oh. and catchers of well, spring training's already well in. Yes, it we're is. Two games in or so yeah. by now. So Brewers are playing the Cubs heck, today. Yeah. So we have some dates now that we can finally, after talking about this generally through the last few episodes, we have dates that we can set in stone that we can talk about here. It's been a while since I've had a good date, so I'm glad for that. Oh, that's two different subjects. My bad. April 28th and 29th, I will be at the Ridges and Rivers Book Festival in beautiful Viroqua, Wisconsin. Great town. Love that. It's very, uh, very boutique-y. It's very artist-friendly. You're not as sarcastic as me, so that actually was no, I love. No, 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 no. Great town, you Viroqua. Really, you have been there. I know you have. You've I've been there many times. They, uh, so there's a great theater there called the Temple Theater. Um, seen many shows there. Haven't been there in a while pre-COVID probably. Yeah, Great really town. Is, yeah. Very artist-friendly, as I said. So that'll be April 28th and 29th um, at the Ridges and Rivers Book Festival. That'll be happening at the Western Technical College and also on the second floor of the Viroqua Eagles Club. Not the Eagles Club in Milwaukee. I have to keep reminding myself of that. Not the rave, but the Eagles Club in Viroqua. I think I will be doing several readings there around town. 
in some establishments, but that is uh, needs to be there are a few Eagles clubs so that figured makes sense. out yet. Also, coming up May 2nd, Mickey and I both will be at, uh, we'll be doing a presentation on the bizarre history of our great state of Wisconsin at an all-state conference for state employees at the Radisson in La Crosse. As I said, coming up on May 2nd, that actually is not open to the public, but we will be doing a ghost hunt the night before that I believe is open to the public so we have some tidbits coming in there i think we might be conducting it as well i have to talk to the powers that be about this um because they may so we're going to be looking at ghosts and talking to people that help help you of course of course they help you we are we are the government we are here to help of course those people the the point is they're going to be listening to us and seeing us in person we pity them yeah, I'm sorry. That's I'm, where I'm, I'm going with this. Let yes. us let us Again, apologize. Again, I'm more sarcastic than you are. So yes, that's us, where I was going with this. Let us apologize beforehand. In advance. So also coming up just a few short days after that, on May 11th, I will be doing a presentation at the Neville Public Museum in Green Bay, one of my favorite places. It is a nice place. A wonderful jewel of a history museum that we have here in Green Bay. I'll be doing a dinner presentation, so you can come and see me, you can have a great dinner, and then you can hear me talk about finding Dairyland. You do have to register for that, and you can find information on that on nevillepublicmuseum.org. Org. That's cool that your book tour is starting up again. Starting up. it's uh, Everything's that, ramping up in the springtime. That right? means the weather's getting better and you get to start talking about your cool books. And then a little bit down the road in September, September 22nd to the 24th, Mickey and I will be at the Great Lakes, the first ever Great Lakes Paranormal Conference in beautiful Glenbeula, Wisconsin. That is the paranormal conference maybe of the year. That's a pretty big weekend. There's pretty... You know, there's really two industries that kind of own the pop culture conference arena, shall we say. True crime and paranormal. CrimeCon this year, I think, is in Orlando, Florida that weekend, the 22nd to 24th. And the paranormal conference of that weekend is in Glen Beulah. And anybody who's anybody in the paranormal pop culture world is going to be there. We're talking Jason Hawes of Ghost Hunters, Adam Barry of Ghost Hunters, Shane Pittman from Holzer Files, Dave Schrader, uh, Jeff Belanger, Barnaby Jones. Some of these names we've mentioned before. So Mickey and I are going to be there. We'll have a table there. We will be carousing around uh, all three days, taking in the speakers, taking in the sights, and you can come see us and talk a little Badger Bazaar. So we actually are going to be crisscrossing, literally crisscrossing the state so far and these are just the dates that we can talk about these are just the dates that we have set in stone and are booked and ready to go these aren't even the dates that we're working on behind the scenes be sure to check our social media twitter facebook and we'll be sending out these dates as they get closer to happening so eventually on youtube and some of these other websites too we are going we are working uh, as we said before on a youtube channel we will eventually have a patreon for you to contribute uh, financially to the show if you so choose um, that's the most important one by the way we're going to we're going to be endeavoring in some sponsorships coming up so we are growing up before your we very ears, it, before you, I don't know how we're much becoming in, real. investment I put in that, that as far as growing up. But well, the, sh- the, 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 podcast, the, the podcast is, right. you know, yeah, we're doing what us, we yeah. can. So, and it, obviously, we're we're continuing to travel throughout uh, the summer. We're going to be wherever you are. We will be in close proximity to you at some point. So, you might even want to check under your bed or 
in your closet Cross before you turn the lights on. You never know where. Proximity. You never know where Mickey might be. Uh, Mickey, really? All the creepy gets put on me. Fine, I'll be under your bed. Watch out. Uh, we like to start out with uh, some of the bizarre news and notes going on in our great state of Wisconsin, and our friend Taylor Shabiznis. Not our friend. Not our friend. We are still here. She is not our friend. Uh, is back in the news uh, today. If you remember, Taylor Shabiznis, who we've talked about a few times on the podcast. This is an ongoing court trial. Which um, just started. That's why you'll be hearing more about it. But she is the uh, the lovely lady who, in a uh, meth-fueled sex romp, uh, decapitated her partner, uh, I guess she like put a dog collar on his neck and uh, wound up going full full blown Jeffrey Dahmer on the She's guy. She's the one who said she idolized Jeffrey Dahmer, and when they asked her if she enjoyed it, she said, "Yeah, I liked it." So she was in court this week. Uh, actually, that's about a couple days ago, where they were actually uh, she has already been deemed competent to stand trial by a judge. As of a year ago, she was. Yeah. But they were in court earlier this week to try to call new experts to try to, I guess, appeal that and to say that there's there's more experts saying that she is not actually competent. So during this hearing... And then she gave them some evidence. She, she, she went full on fisticuffs on her lawyer, Quinn Jolly, right in the courtroom. It's all captured on video. She is chained up. She's in cuffs. She's in chains, but that doesn't matter. So the article, WBAY, obviously a local uh, Green Bay TV station, WBAY captured the moment on camera. Uh, in a Brown County courtroom in which Taylor Shabiznis, who was shackled and wearing an orange jumpsuit, began hitting her defense attorney, Quinn Jolly. A deputy immediately pulled her off and wrestled her to the floor. Shabiznis fought back and kicked at the deputy, but he called for backup and she eventually relented. Now, they did need three bailiffs or three deputies to finally subdue her because she was not easily going to relent. But, you know, the interesting thing here with her is... Again, and, you know, maybe this is more evidence that she's just not competent, which I don't, full disclosure here, I'm not a doctor. I don't believe somebody like this would be competent. And and we, I think we discussed in the first time we brought her up in the first place, at some point she's been diagnosed as bipolar. She's been dealing with mental illness since the seventh grade. Right. Which is a telling sign, obviously. Right. You know, she doesn't remember what happened. Not the murder. She remembers the murder. I'm saying she didn't remember what happened in court because after she was subdued and she was sitting against the wall, she then says to the deputies, what happened? And the deputy says, quote, you went off on your attorney, Taylor. You went crazy on your attorney. So it's almost as if... She's blacking out. She dissociates. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's it's really... You know, it, it, maybe it's all an act. I don't know. Right. And, but, but this is... Signs of schizophrenia or, like you said, dissociative personality disorder. But the... But she'll vividly talk about what she's being accused of, which is the murder and and how ritualistic that is. So that part she enjoyed. I'm pretty sure she's a psychopath. That's evidence of that right there. So to refresh your memory, quote, in the early morning hours of February 23, 2022, so just almost a year ago to the day, Green Bay police went to a residence on Stony Brook Lane after a woman reportedly found her son's head in a bucket. Police learned the victim was last seen alive with Shabiznis, and investigators searched her van for evidence. They reportedly found a crock pot with legs in it, as well as a, quote, male organ, unquote, in a bucket at the Stony Brook Lane How home. big is that crock pot, for she, one thing? She chopped this dude up and put pieces of his body in 
his house for his mother to find, who also lived there. Shabiznis faces charges of first-degree intentional homicide, mutilating a corpse, and third-degree sexual assault for the February 22nd death of 25-year-old Shad Therian. So, as the world turns with uh, with Shabiznis here, we will continue following this. This is an internationally known case. The UK has articles on this all the time. Even the New York Times is talking about it. The New York Times and the New York Post are all over this too. So this is a well-known case that we will, and for unfortunate reasons, obviously. I mean, a man here is dead because of this. But, uh, you know, we'll continue following this story as it goes along. Another story we have that's, you know, starting to kind of really make traction here. This is the case of a 34-year-old man from Milwaukee who is missing right now from rural Grant County. Um, and he's been missing now since December. So this is a story that's, you know, we're going on three months here. It's kind of taken hold. People are starting to uh, realize this now outside of this area. 34-year-old Ronald Henry says, according to deputies and loved ones, Henry was staying at a friend's farmhouse in rural Grant County during the early hours of December 5th. Now, he apparently was staying at this farm and he was working to try to earn money to go to a, quote, sporting event in Green Bay later that month. I can only assume that was a Packer game, I would think. I don't know what else. GB is really bad that this year. That would have been, yes. Can't definitely not the UWG. Yeah. Now, the friend he was staying with, Tyler Daly, told deputies that Ronald asked him to go outside and check on some dogs that sounded like they were in trouble around 3.30 in the morning. So, obviously, they're sleeping. They hear dogs barking outside. and They he goes both up. go outside? Then? Only he does. Only Ronald Henry. Ronald Henry went outside to check on these dogs that sounded like they were, quote, in trouble. And he was never heard from again. Well, he was never seen again. So, the dad, Tyler Daly's father, Jim Daly, got up at 7.30 in the morning, and he sees the front door open. So, obviously... Wide open. Right. And it's in wintertime. So right. right. So, obviously... Ronald Henry goes outside, expecting only to be out there for a second, a minute, you know, just to see what's going on, and he never comes back in, and he's never been seen again. Now, the interesting thing is five hours later, at about 8.30 in the morning, Jim Daly gets a voicemail from him, Ronald Henry, and it's just a very quick voicemail saying, hey, Jim, it's Ronald, Uh, give me a call when you get a chance. And that's the last time anybody's ever heard. Even heard from him. From Ronald Henry. This is going on, it's three months now. Past, well, it's almost four months now. December and his, 5th. And, and his in family March. is understandably pretty vivid as far as the search that's been going on. So, Quote, Henry's family says they are not satisfied with local law enforcement search efforts. Grant County Sheriff's Office suspended their search of the area last week. This would have been earlier this month and running out of leads and combing over 2,500 acres of land. We haven't gotten any satisfaction, Henry's grandmother said. I need to know more. Now, I think it, you know, it does bear out saying that this is in Grant County, right? I don't think they have a lot of missing persons cases in Grant County. This is in the far southwest part of the state, um, almost going into Iowa. Not a lot of crime, I don't think, in that area. Not a lot of high-profile stuff. So a missing person just flat out disappearing. They're not, they don't have a lot of experience. Sure, you know, that. I think but the resources the other hand, there are lacking. In, in our instant gratification world that we live in, and, and the negative attitude that people have towards the government, law enforcement, people just assume instant news and instant information. And I'd like anybody to, to put themselves in the shoes of these people that are trying to figure this stuff out, doing, working, you know, 
horrible hours. A lot of these guys devote so much time to the, to their job trying to find out, and people are just so quick they'd be mad at them. They don't understand how difficult that process is. I mean, I understand that they lost their loved one, but these people are working as hard as anybody. Those people need to understand it is not an easy process, or they would have found him already. If he's somebody who wanted to be lost, it's going to make it even more difficult. It's not easy, especially because there's so many other things going on. Try to see things from another person's point of view once in a while and recognize that these law enforcement officials are doing the best they can, and it is not easy. And if they were in their shoes, they would understand it is not an easy process. I think one of the things you said there when you said maybe he wanted to be lost, I think when you're dealing with a 34-year-old man here, I think sometimes makes it even more difficult sometimes people think the police are kind of jumping to that conclusion because uh, he's and a, maybe they you know, do but it, that doesn't mean they they call off the search right no they've they've used every resource they have in grant in grant county and i you know i don't know this but i'm sure they've asked for assistance from other counties as well it says they've searched 2700 acres and they don't have any leads they have nothing and, and, and they've got a few other things they've got to do in the process like other missing people right. and other things going on so for, it, it just kind of frustrates me a little bit when people are so quick to be so mad so fast it's like these guys are doing the best they can with very little resources a lot of times with so many other people harping on them to get the information they want for whatever thing they're talking about and even the 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 call that he made when he left the voicemail five hours later so five hours after anybody had ever had seen him they pinged his phone from that voicemail and the voicemail was left from somewhere in the vicinity of where he was already, somewhere in the vicinity of that area in Grant County. So even five hours later, he hadn't gone far. And even his girlfriend mentions that just the tone of his voice in that phone call makes it sound like he was a little distraught and maybe a little upset, on the verge of crying even. That's his girlfriend saying that, and she would kind of know. So they think this might be a very good lead. But again, just because it's a lead doesn't mean it's just all the information sitting there in their lap. They still have to follow through with it. So the the family is, as we said, who's not, they're not happy with the progress that's been made. And obviously we can't blame them for that. Understandably, if I lost a loved one, I'd be upset too. So they're they're hiring their own private investigator to look into the case. And, you know, more more power to them. More eyes on this can be helpful. But don't be so upset with these law enforcement officials who have other things going on who are doing their best. Because none of us, it wouldn't be easy for any of us unless we're Monk or Sherlock Holmes, possibly. So now now Ronald Henry is 34 years old. He's about 5'10". He's an African-American male. You know, if, if anybody out there uh, listening might know anything or have any information at all that could possibly help in the search for Ronald Henry, please get a hold of the Grant County Sheriff's Department at 608-723-2157 or call anonymously at Grant County Crime Stoppers at 1-800-789-6600. So one of the longest standing and most sacred traditions that we have here in Wisconsin is deer hunting season, right? Especially opening day. It's like Christmas morning to a lot of hunters, right? Nine days in November, people take off of work. They take off of school. They spend time with their families and their buddies. Big bonding time for fathers and sons, I think. The second week of deer camp and all the guys are here. Now, deer hunting season, obviously, there's always a lot of accidents that happen. People are accidentally shot. Seems like there's a lot of heart attacks and stuff in the woods when that goes on. So, Dick Cheney shoots his friend. Yeah, Dick Cheney. You always got to keep the guns away from that guy. But there always seems to be some kind of, you know, 
shooting accidents that comes with some kind of expectation, right? We know that's happening. 2008, a uh, little bit different. Three bodies were found throughout the state. Dead human bodies were found throughout the state in 2008. One we know of. One was a 56-year-old man from Dodge County that died by suicide. He was missing. His son was worried about him. Uh, suicide was something that was worried about in that situation. And uh, his body was found during deer hunting season, and they know that that was uh, a suicide. The other two, though, seem to be homicides. Both in the eastern part of the state, about 100 miles apart, one in Brown County uh, and the other one further south in Fond du Lac County. Now, on Wednesday, November 26, 2008, hunters walking through a marsh in rural Brown County, and this would kind of be on the, on the border of Brown and Manitowoc counties, uh, hunters walking through a marsh found what they thought was a human skull sticking out of the ground. Right, so they see that, they mark the spot, and they get out of there. And good on them, you know. I they get the willies every time you say that. They they mark the spot. They note they note that that certainly is not a deer carcass, right? And they see the skull. It doesn't look like anything other than human. Yeah, human and deer skulls do right. not look the same. Not not alike. So they leave, right? And they they call authorities, and authorities come, and the police come out, and they find a complete skeleton. So it was a grave. There was some clothing present, modern clothing, so they knew right away it wasn't Native American burial or something like that. So this was looked very suspicious from the beginning, and it had clearly been there for a while. They didn't speculate about it publicly without a thorough examination, but it was pretty clear from the beginning that this was a smaller stature female wearing modern clothing, so they knew that this was a suspicious find. A few days before this, on Sunday, November 23rd, 2008, another body was found, this time in Fond du Lac County. This would be in the town of Ashford, which is near Campbellsport. Now, at 9.17 a.m., Sunday, November 23rd, three hunters were walking along a frozen creek behind an abandoned farm on private property, and I think that's important. It will be. We'll probably come back to that. This was on private property, and they're walking along... A, a creek, and they saw not what they think was a body. They saw a body. This was a clear human body. Or at least half of it. They see the legs sticking out of the water, and the I guess like from the torso up was encased in ice. Legs and torso sticking up out of the water, upper body encased in ice. Imagine finding that, man. I mean, and this this is a creek. This is not like a pond that they're looking across the water at, right? They're, so it might be faint could, in the distance. They could probably touch this. This is you know? fairly clear, and, and, and it's the legs up. So here, too, in this, in this case, obviously, they get out of there, and they call authorities. And the authorities come, and they have to chisel the body out of the ice. I mean, it, it was so to, to collect the body, which was not fully skeletonized like the one in Brown County was. This it's important was, to note, too, that this, this year it experienced massive flooding from what was called that year as a 100-year flood. So th- there was much higher levels of water and more standing water than usual. So whether that plays into this or not, that creek would have been deeper than usual. The ice would have been thicker, too, as a result. So chiseling it out was not an easy process. And they were there all day. So, they're, you know, they're called there at like 9.30 in the morning. 
And they're there till sundown, at least, chiseling the body out of ice. Because I might say they want to protect it. They're not just digging at it. Right. They want to protect the body and and preserve um, any kind of evidence, obviously, that that might be around. And there was frigid weather going on with snow falling and water refreezing as, as the process went on of digging out the body. So, again, this was not skeletonized, but it was badly decomposed. But they're able to tell as in the one in Brown County, based on the clothing that was on it, that this was a female, probably quite young, and they estimated that the female was between, likely between 15 and 20 years old. Now, in Brown County, in the body found up there, now, again, these bodies are found three days apart, one in Brown County, one in Fond du Lac. In Brown County, authorities were pretty quickly able to identify that body because there were missing persons on the books that kind of fit the description of, of the body found. So using dental records, Brown County authorities were pretty quickly able to identify that as Arirat Chaprevich, who was a 32-year-old St. Norbert University student, missing for five years. She'd been missing since April of 2003. Now, she was a native of Thailand, but she was married to a very well-known Green Bay doctor, at the time, Tom Tepravich. Now, the, the lead, after her investigation, the lead suspect in her disappearance, I should say after her disappearance, the lead suspect in the investigation of her disappearance was her step-son-in-law. So this would be her husband, Tom's daughter from a previous marriage, her husband. His name was Carl McLeod. Now, in 2006, Carl McLeod committed suicide while in prison for another incident separate from this and where he beat a woman days before Arirat Chaprevich went missing. So because, and he wound up hanging himself in the resource center in Oshkosh. So because when they found her body, the lead suspect was already deceased, they pretty much closed that out. Maybe not officially. I don't know that's an officially closed case, but they're not looking for her murder anymore. Because he's gone and they figured it was him. Right. So that one is pretty much off. Sounds like he had off the books. legal and emotional reasons to be committing suicide if he was the guy. Well, he was in prison for the next 10 years at least. Anyway, and yeah. And, and with this it, on your conscience. You're, and and you're, they're coming as him, at him as a suspect, so he maybe figured life was over as it was. Now, the body in Fond du Lac, uh, authorities were not so lucky there. They didn't have any missing persons locally on the books that would fit this description. So they open it up. Obviously, they have to start looking statewide even more than that if they need to. So this is when rumors start, whispers start swirling. Is this Lori Deppis, right? Is this Amber Wildey, Lori Deppis, obviously missing from Appleton, Amber Wildey missing from Green Bay. Um, Obviously, both of those did not check out. Both of those women, Lori Deppis and Amber Wildey, still missing today, 2023. Definitely cold cases, as this one became. Illinois authorities called and wondered if it was Stacy Peterson. Now, this was a... The Stacy Peterson case was a very famous, internationally known case out of Chicago, well, out of northern Illinois, not necessarily Chicago, when former cop Drew Peterson was accused of killing Stacy Peterson, his wife, and then also he was accused of killing his previous wife before that. Big story. Stacy Peterson today still as well missing, never found. So obviously none of these turn out to be true, right? And they did, in this case, ruled out idea of suicide because of where the body was found. So it was a suspected homicide awfully quick. Just because the body where it was was suspicious, they figured she didn't get there by herself but was dumped. 
They were unsure if the reason was isolation and convenience of the site or something specific. It was it was called I'd seen it called a quote a classic dump site. Right. Unquote. Right. So that this these are the reasons that they say they are pretty confident that that was a homicide. That was the direction they were going to go in as far as their leads and looking for information. They're, so they're as of right now they're left with an unknown, right? It's not it doesn't seem to be uh, a high-profile local missing person like Lori Deppis, like Amber Wildey. Nobody is calling and saying, hey, that could be my daughter. That could be my wife. So they're they're at a loss. Right? And that's why they start figuring she's not a local, because they figured those people would have started making calls and in- inquiries and trying to figure out if it was theirs or not. And so they figured it must have been an out-of-state situation as far as the victim's body. Somebody you would think definitely would come forward by now if it was somebody within the state. And it's understandable you know. that they come to these conclusions sure. because they're just trying to figure things out. So right now they, they know nothing, right? All they know is that they have a, a pretty badly decomposed female body who they believe has been dead for months, not years, maybe as young as 14 and possibly as old as 40, although they do uh, estimate that it was between 15 and 20. Cause of death is unknown. There's no evidence of suicide, like we said. Um, there's no explanation of how she ended up in a, in a frozen creek in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin. But they're adamant that this is a homicide. Now, obviously, they're searching the creek for clues, right? You know, they're, they're, they're looking for anything they can find in the area. Um, and they didn't find much of anything. Apparently, she was not wearing any jewelry. The police... Uh, didn't find anything. Later on, a local Fox affiliate out of Milwaukee, I believe, did their own search of the area, and they brought an expert metal detector out there. Remember, this is a creek. This isn't a big pond. It's not a lake. It's a creek. So the water would have been a little deeper than usual because of the 100 years flood, but it's still not a real deep passageway to begin with. Right. So, So they bring metal detectors out there, professional guys that know what they're doing, and they do find a St. Benedict pendant that they cannot be for certain was hers. It did have some corrosion on it. They couldn't be for certain how long it was in there. But again, this is on private property. There's not, you know, years of people trucking past this creek. So this St. Benedict pendant was found in the vicinity of where her body was. You know, you might find arrowheads in that creek. You might Things find that maybe long old farming before, tools, right. right? But are you going to find a St. Benedict pendant? I don't think it's a jump to say that, that I believe that that was hers. I don't think they grow those in nature either. Right. I don't <laughs> think those are seeded. So yeah, that now, would have been placed. Another interesting thing is that it has been reported that there was also a bracelet found in the creek. With multiple pendants. With multiple pendants. Now, who found that is unclear. But it's been reported that there was a bracelet found in the vicinity with multiple pendants in it. But this has not come from Fond du Lac, and they never verified that. So one of two things happened, in my opinion. Uh, That's either erroneous reporting or Fond du Lac shut that down because they're trying to keep some information private. When you're doing a murder investigation, you want to keep some things out of the public. So it's interesting to me that it's reported that, yes, uh, you know, police say she wasn't wearing any jewelry, but it's reported that, well, a bracelet with pendants was found, and Fond du Lac shut that down. So to me, it's either erroneous reporting, or they don't want that quite out there yet. And as you said, it's obvious to, to some degree, but I try to see all points of view when I overanalyze, as I do. But on one hand, I would think if they're trying to get information, they would want to release as much as they can so that people can maybe have something triggered in their mind and go, oh, I know something. But on the other hand, the way people as a whole 
respond. There might be some panic. There might be some criticism. There might be some judgment about situations they know nothing of that they didn't want the public to jump to. And that's why they withhold this information until they are 100% sure what it is. They did say that her hair was very well preserved. It was shoulder length, about 12 to 14 inches, and it was light brown with different shades. And they believed it would have been highlighted at some point. These are just facts that they came across in this long, tedious process of trying to figure out as much as they possibly could. So that's why I'm trying to mention these details, because these are the kind of things they comb through, which may not seem significant, but anything could have led to a lead, and that's what they were looking for. So they were able to estimate through forensic entomology which is analyzing insects on her body. They're able to pinpoint when she went into the water. Well, I shouldn't say pinpoint, but they're estimating when she went into the water, apparently two to four months prior to her body being found. So now we're looking at sometime likely between July and August of 2008, sometime in the, in the summer, mid to late summer is when her body went in there. Now that does not necessarily mean time of death, right? Right. That's just when, how long her body has been in the water. If it's a homicide, as they suspect, she might have been dead longer than that, but that's when they figure the body was put into that water. And the water is very telling, as we'll get to, because the water has a different effect on people, on, on a body, than than being buried or just being on dry land. So because they didn't have much of anything to go on, right? They have a body. They're not getting any, any good leads about to who this person might be. And again, that's why I'm, I'm mentioning all these different details, because they're scouring every little thing they can find. So one thing that they centered on right away was one of the things that they could trace on her, and that was the clothes that she was wearing. And with that, they're able to tell a, a couple of things. She was wearing a Zoe Beth brand black and pink tube top with a pink bow across the back, which was sold only at Family Dollar. And it was sold in the spring of 2008. The bra and panty set that she was wearing was also sold at Family Dollar. And there was only one shipment ever sent out to Family Dollar. And that was on July 1st, 2008. But that was a much larger size than the top she was wearing. Right. Which is an, also added to the confusion. So the different size of clothing she was wearing. So they know that she, at least back to early July, she's alive. Right? Because this is when uh, this clothing was purchased. It had just come out, so she couldn't have been, she had to have been alive around that time because it was never released before then. Now, as Mickey said, that the conundrum that the clothing created here was the size of the clothes was not consistent, right? So her bra was a 36C, but her tube top was a small. Her panties were a large, but the jeans she was wearing were a size three. So it's like the underwear she's wearing is for a much larger person than a person who would wear the clothing that she was wearing. So right? it's hard to identify the size, uh, whether she's average size or petite or large. Or... And are these her clothes? Right. I mean, that throws another pickle. Yeah, you don't even know what in, size the body this. is, much less whose clothes she's wearing, because if she is smaller, why is she wearing such oversized clothing, especially underneath clothing? Right. Now, there are, obviously, we've all seen it. And she was only four feet 10 to 5 foot 4 tall they figured so she wasn't very tall so, which means she could have been probably was petite to begin with the, we, we've all seen bigger people male and female wear clothing that's obviously too small for them and they do that intentionally for obvious reasons was that being done us not we, so much not no we we wear oversized clothing definitely and black <laughs> so and also with her she, there were never any shoes or socks found so again, this is in the summertime. Her her jeans were rolled up, so um, you know that seems to to note that she was probably wearing sandals at some point. But there were no sandals found either, so she had lost those somewhere along the line uh, before she wound up 
in the creek. Another problem they had was because of how severely decomposed the body was, they were unable to utilize scars or birthmarks or tattoos for identifying purposes. wounds, or anything like that. The body was greatly decomposed with much soft tissue changing into adipocere during saponification. Now these terms, which are not in common language, adipocere is a tan or grayish white waxy substance formed from decomposition of a dead body soft tissue exposed to moisture. That's the key because it was in water. This can also be known as corpse wax or grave wax. And due to this, as Scott said, especially the, the wounds, scars, anything that might have been there telling them what could have happened, those were gone. And this made the cause of the death tougher, as I mentioned. Now, what caused this is called saponification. This is the process of the body's fatty acids turning into a waxy soap-like compound covering any corpse and preventing putrefaction, which is the process of rotting or decay in any organic matter. There's your science lesson for the day. So, the you know, sometimes you hear about bodies turning to soap or, or turning to what looks like soap. That is exactly what Mickey had just And I knew that happened, said. but I'd never heard those terms. It It's interesting to hear that, kind of disgusting, but it definitely paints a picture that we wouldn't normally get when we're just reading articles about this stuff. Now, they did run her DNA. They, they did have her DNA and her dental records, and they ran them through every available database that they had. And her teeth did have some, what they thought were identifying characteristics. She had a bit of an overbite. Not extreme, but, you know, enough that they thought it was noticeable. Might have been noticeable. And then it, it would have, you know, certainly they thought could have helped in, in identifying her. She did have four fillings and no current cavities. So it certainly seems like she was receiving dental care. Doesn't It doesn't seem like she was a transient her whole life. You know, she did have some kind of medical care, more than likely. Four fillings on her lower molars and sealant work done on her four upper molars, which, again, all of her teeth are being dealt with, so that means somebody was caring for it because this stuff is not free, and you have to go to a dentist to get this done. So, obviously, she's not just living on the streets at this point. They send this out. They they run her DNA. They run her dental records. Nothing. No hits uh, on any DNA database or... Uh, for dental records. And so again, they, they have they have nothing. They have a body. They have no matches for the body. They have no families seemingly looking for a body. They also ran toxicology tests looking for traces of alcohol and drugs. The results were never released to the public. They also found that the body had a healed fracture to one of the left ribs and suffered from spina bifida occulta, which is the mildest form of spina bifida, sometimes called hidden spina bifida. With it is a small gap in a spine, but no opening or sac in the back. Spinal cord and nerves are usually normal, and they believe that's why she might not have even known she had this condition. One other thing they figured was that she was either pigeon-toed or knock-kneed as her feet were slanted inward enough that they actually noticed it could probably have been noticeable while she walked. Now, authorities in Cleveland thought that this might be the body of Amanda Berry, who had been missing since 2003 when she was 17. Now, true crime buffs are going to remember Amanda Berry, who was found along with two other women, Gina DeJesus and Amanda Knight, alive. Alive. They'd been found in a house in Cleveland, being held captive for 10 years by a man named Ariel Castro. This was a massive story in uh, 2013 when they were found. They were being held captive in it, just like a normal house in a residential street somewhere in Cleveland. These three women, and uh, Ariel Castro had left, and apparently they had... Uh, gotten the attention of somebody outside 
who, you know, like broke a window and helped them escape. So all three of those women are alive and they're alive today. Uh, but at the time in 2003, they thought that this body found in Fond du Lac might be the body of Amanda Berry. So again, obviously that wasn't her. So, you know, another dead end there. So speaking of Amanda Berry, a few times authorities thought the identification was successful, as Scott mentioned. In 2010, the FBI's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program database, or VICAP as most people would know it, was also a resource that they tried using. A few of the other names that, that authorities thought she could have been at the time and then later found out that that wasn't her. Connie McAllister, who was later discovered still alive in Mexico, and Brittany Pert, who was discovered, unfortunately, not alive any longer, in Maryland in December of 2011, and her cause of death remains unreleased. DNA analysis helped prove these things incorrect. Now, her skull and autopsy photos were sent to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in Virginia, and so they use CT scans of her skull um, and deep tissue depth markers, and they they do a, a digital rendering of what they believe her appearance was. Uh, the problem with this is that the track record of these are not always what you would hope for. You know, the first digital rendering of her was made her look Hispanic. Now, they did, police believed she was Caucasian, but an anthropologist from UW-Madison apparently determined somehow that she was Hispanic or Native American. And the digital rendering does resemble that, you know, so that seems to be a match, right? You have an anthropologist saying that she was Hispanic or Native American, the digital rendering that they did on her certainly makes her, um, gives her a bit of a, a Hispanic or, or Native American look. So that's what they had to go on, and that's pretty much it. They also thought she could have possibly been Asian. They were certain that she was not African American. Possibly she was biracial. So these are all different possibilities, not clearing things up very well, in other words. It should be known that Detective Jerry Kane from the Fond du Lac Sheriff's Office did his best to keep the case as active as possible during the investigation. He hired anthropologists, as we've mentioned, to create a clay model of the victim's head. They couldn't necessarily afford the much more pricey bust of it. They asked Texas authorities if investiga investigation could be carried out in Mexico. Unfortunately, Texas was very uncooperative, and they even submitted victim's profile on state's first edition of the cold case playing cards. These were handed out to inmates in state prisons in hopes of getting tips from the convicts. So he was doing everything in his due diligence to spread the word and get any kind of information he could to keep this case active and open so that it wasn't just given up on as a lot of these cold cases become eventually. So after three years of having found her body, doing all of the testing possible that is available to them uh, and not having any luck, Fond du Lac authorities do decide to bury her remains. So on December 7th, 2011, uh, Jane Doe, who she was known as, right, Fond du Lac County Jane Doe, was interred at Cataraugus Cemetery in Waupon. Fond du Lac paid for the headstone. Now, the headstone had the digital rendering of her on it, and it also had, which is I think is kind of cool, it had a QR code on it. So if somebody went to that grave, they see she's a Jane Doe. It says on there that she's obviously unknown, and there was a QR code on it, so you could scan that obviously with your cell phone and it would bring you up to to her story who she was where she was found well who she was to the point that they know right all the information the pertinent information about 
her body. Which is a testament to how much the the technology and our resources advanced just in the time they were researching, trying to figure out who this body was. When they first found her, they didn't have any of this stuff. And now they have a scan code on her headstone that you can not only find out about the case, but they also gave an option to submit tips if you wanted on that same QR code. So, and I, and I believe they're doing even more than that nowadays. And this was again, 2011. So pretty, pretty amazing stuff. They did have a service for her. They did have a funeral. It it was attended by police media. Uh, I think several dozen local residents showed up. One of the original residents, one of the deer hunters from the original three that found her was at the funeral. So, you know, they, they wanted to pay their respects. They wanted to, to do what they thought was right for the body. For the record, the body had been kept in the Fond du Lac County morgue for the previous three years. Just for details, it was a light blue casket purchased by Fond du Lac County along with the vault and other burial expenses. Cole's Community Funeral Home in Wapan donated casket flowers and laminated marker with pink roses and a composite picture with the marker reading Jane Doe laid to rest December 7, 2011. And even Wapan High School donated a wreath, which just goes to show they were treating this body as because it was a human life at some point. They didn't just disregard it. A lot of these expenses were just picked up by the county. So, right. Now, Charles Sosinski, who was one of the original detectives on the case, said at, you know, at the funeral, he says, quote, I guess the thing that's most troubling in this case is that there's more than likely a family out there who doesn't know where their loved one is. She's still a human being. She's important, and someone's missing her. I have children, too. If that was my child, it's important. There's some emotion that goes into it. Somebody gave birth to this kid. Some woman spent nine months carrying this kid and gave birth to her, so they're a significant part of this person's life. No doubt. And, you know, by now there's, this is a well-known case. There's national, there's a national team working on this. Joe Jicalone, who is a national cold case expert and retired New York City detective, says, quote, as an investigator, this is one of the cases you don't want. It takes so many hours. You're trying to find out who your victim is before you can even find your killer. It's an investigation within your investigation. These cases are total nightmares, unquote. So that gives you a little bit of an idea, not that you didn't already, about what Fond du Lac was dealing with here. Now, to their credit, to Fond du Lac's credit, who, you know, Mickey and I give them all the credit in the world, even although this was technically a cold case, and even though the body was buried, they didn't give up. They did their best to keep it open and in their minds so they could always be coming up with more information or spreading the information, even even coming with a deck of cards to give to state inmates. I mean, that's kind of ingenious, they, they, as simple as it seems. They created a Facebook page for her. Right. And they actually had to go to court. That was an issue in itself. They actually had to go to court with Facebook. Now, because Facebook's regulations are that you have to have a, you have to be a real person to have a page, right? Kind of makes sense. Right? I don't so, blame Facebook so now, a lot. And, and I guess, I don't know the ins and outs of this, but I would be interested in finding out. Facebook can make its own rules here, right? So I right. guess I'm not sure what happened in court. I don't know how, the, how, how court can say, no, Facebook, you have to allow Fond du Lac to put a, a page up for her. I'm not exactly sure how it went down. End result They required a court order to run the page. But again, just to reiterate, it was due to the use of Jane Doe as opposed to a true name for accountability reasons, which 
as you've seen on Facebook, more and more they're always about accountability and and not trying to get scammed and not people trying to take over identification and all that stuff. So 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 end result, they they did get the Facebook page. They put the composite rendering of her up there. They put a photo of a mannequin wearing the clothes that she was found in. Um, so again, Fond du Lac is doing, it was, it was on America's Most Wanted, yep. it was on their website, and it was featured a few times on the show. So F- Fond du Lac is doing everything they can to find this person who likely was not from Fond du Lac. Even, even right? using social, social media. And again, like you said, they assume she's not from the area or they would have gotten more leads or more people calling in trying to give information. When, when the case first started in 2008, there were six detectives working on it, and they had traveled to Milwaukee and Chicago and Ohio, tracking down all the leads that they thought they might have had. By 2013, Jerry Kane, as I mentioned before, who was the one who just tried to keep it open as long as possible, he was the only one still actively on it. And at that point in 2013, there were no there was no new leads for two years at that point. So it became a frustrating case overall. Now in 2016, two Fond du Lac County detectives presented the case to the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children panel in Virginia. Now, this is a panel consisting of uh, national experts, forensic anthropologists, and under the panel's recommendation, Fond du Lac exhumed her body in April of 2018 to, to collect bone, tooth, and hair samples that was not available in 2008. So again, we're just this is just a 10-year difference. To notice it took 2 years from their from the case being presented again to the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children in 2016. 2 years later, they finally exhumed the body. So that process is long. Well, you got to get a court painful. order for that. Right, right? exactly. Yeah. The government's involved. At, at this point in April 23rd, 2018, the original 2009 reconstruction of the body and face was updated for accuracy and it was re-released to the public. So Which it looks, became a little more accurate. Looks quite a bit different. Right, too. I it, mean, right. It, again, it was updated a lot. Certainly a non-exact science. But they're doing the best they can. Of course, yeah. Now, again, under under the panel's recommendation, they did exhume her body. They, they did do further DNA testing that was not available in, 20, in, in 2008. So they collected bone, tooth, and hair samples, and they began sending those out and, you know, and running those tests and comparing those all throughout the country. Again, they don't get it. Again, there's no matches in this. They also submitted samples to isoforensics which is a lab in Utah that specializes in, quote, chemical isotope analysis and geolocation services, unquote. It basically tells you where you spent your time using isotope analysis. By examining the isotopes that collect in a body throughout a lifetime and comparing those isotopes to those that collect in the ground and water, that's essentially the process that they're, that they're doing here. The, the results of this, they did say, the isotope testing did say, um, that she was estimated to be between 15 and 21, which Fond du Lac knew. Yep, they already knew that. And the tests also indicated that she was from either New Mexico or Arizona originally. And had lived in Las Cruces, New Mexico, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and Flagstaff, Arizona. That's the conclusions they came up with. And that's pretty specific. I mean, they're, they're oh, saying cities the alone. Cities. They're calling out cities. Right. So and that they also said that she likely resided in this region, southwest Wisconsin, southern Minnesota, or northern Iowa, for less than a year before she was found. But she was in this area, supposedly, before she was found dead. So now because of this, this takes the investigation into a whole other direction, right? They're saying she's likely from 
the Southwest. Remember, the original digital rendering said that she was likely Hispanic. The anthropologist at UW-Madison said that she was likely Hispanic or Native American. So now they turn their attention to the Southwest. And authorities begin looking at whether Jane Doe in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, was possibly a victim of a serial killer known as the West Mesa Bone Collector. This is in reference to a part of Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is basically an undeveloped area within the city limits of Albuquerque. Um, Eleven bodies of women were found in that area. Right, in which a woman was walking her dog in February of 2009, came across what she thought was a human bone, called authorities, and police wound up finding the remains of 11 women and girls, all between the ages of 15 and 32. None of these murders in, in Albuquerque, these bodies that they found, were ever solved. It's thought to be possibly a dumping ground for a sex trafficking ring or thought to be the dumping ground of a serial killer called the West Mesa Bone Collector, none or of which has ever been solved. Right, that's pure speculation. But basically, this had all turned into a distraction because, as it turned out, uh, after 13 long, exhaustive years... Fond du Lac County Jane Doe was finally able to be positively identified in late 2021. November 23rd, to be exact. On November 23rd, 2021, exactly 13 years to the day. Isn't that kind of crazy? Her body was, was found. Exactly to the day. 13 years to 13 the day. 13 is not a lucky number. No doubt. Her body was discovered. Fond du Lac County authorities publicly disclosed her name. Amy Marie Yeary, 18 years old. From Rockford, Illinois. Born December 9th, 1989. Now, she was she was identified using what we have talked about before on, on the last few episodes of, of the podcast, actually. Familial DNA. Uh, you use the help of genealogists to search for potential relatives of an unknown DNA sample. And in fact, in this case, the genealogist was Barbara Ray Venter, who was best known for her help identifying the Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo. So she'd had some experience in this regard as far as identifying major characters in our history as a country. And, and, that, and that's, the, that's the case that's always brought up as, as kind of the first, the first case that was ever cracked using familial DNA, using this this method and because it means she's kind of a pioneer sure and because this is such an exhaustive process the state is only able to conduct six of these searches a year because it costs that much well i think it just takes that long because you're looking you know this is genealogy you're basic you you know oh right you're paging through microfiche and newspaper articles and all that kind of stuff i mean just try looking up your own family history it takes a long time so her identity was confirmed by comparing her DNA to her mother's, her sister's, and also dental records. So now that they had someone specific to compare them to, now they could d- compare them to her known, Amy Yeary's known dental records, and they have a positive match. Now, Amy, uh, as Mickey said, was born December 9th, 1989, in Rockford, Illinois. We don't seem to know a whole lot about her. There's not a lot of information about her. Uh, out there, nor really should there be. Don't forget, she was 18 years old when she was found. So obviously she lived most of her life as a minor. So there wouldn't really be a whole lot of information out there. There is a Facebook group that her sister put up when she was missing. And it is still active. Her sister still posts on it. Um, And there's several photos of her on there, of Amy on there when she was young, all seemingly, uh, you know, quote unquote, normal looking. 
seems that there was, uh, you know, a bit of a, of a normal uh, growing up period there. Of course, I'm judging by looking at photographs. I can't, you know, be 100% sure of that. But just looking at the Facebook page that her sister has put up, she looked to be somewhat of a happy child. Which is something I'd like to talk about. People tend to judge that which they don't understand. Before we get too far into this, I just want everyone to know we're not going to launch ourselves to conclusions about situations we know nothing about, that we will never know anything about, because we don't know what happened with this woman and her family. It's it's said that she lived often lived a transient lifestyle and that she spent time in Chicago, Beloit, and Milwaukee in the weeks before her death, which it's said that that is a triangle between Milwaukee, Green Bay, and Eau Claire. It is known for a high rate of human trafficking. Her body was found in an area where she was in close proximity to a large gas station, a truck stop, and to a large adult video sex item type stores and a golf course. We've, we actually mentioned some of this seemed to be the case even way back n- number 10 episode Northwoods Vice. It sounds as this area still has the same reputation. But the point is, as far as if she was there, why she was there, we don't know what happened with her family. It's not our position to judge, and we don't know 95% of the facts and details that went on between her and her family. Maybe she was the victim. Maybe she was the villain. Who knows what she did and what's gone on between those people? So to jump to conclusions as far as who she was or how her family acted is completely unfair. So we're going to try to keep our minds open and just ask possible questions that could be asked, but not pass judgment as we do it. There is a difference between asking questions, which I think are valid questions, and judging situations. Now, police said that in the days before she went missing, she called her mother from Beloit and said she said she needed a ride home. But her mom, according to police, due to extenuating circumstances, was unable to help. And that's the last time they ever heard from from Amy. And her mother was living in northern Illinois at the time where they still live, as far as we know. Now, again, police are adamant this is, without a question in their mind, a homicide. They say she's a victim of, of sex trafficking. As Mickey said, was oftentimes transient. Spent time in Chicago, Milwaukee, Beloit in the weekend, in the weeks before she went missing. Now, obviously, there's there's reasons that we don't know why they believe that, right? But so far, they've just said that, as we had mentioned earlier, the remoteness of the area. She didn't get there by herself. It's a, quote, classic dump site. And uh, this area, again, is known for sex trafficking and these kinds of things. Right, but, but we, just, we just covered a case. Well, we just talked about a case in our last episode. Janet Rash and Stevens Point, where for 38 years they were looking for Janet Rash's killer. Assuming it was a homicide, It right? was not a homicide. She ended up essentially accidentally killing herself, as we mentioned. The body was burned. Now, obviously, there's logical reasons they think it's a homicide. Who's going to set themselves on fire? Right. She did. But it happened on accident. Of she course. didn't do it intentionally. It was a tragic but, mistake. But even in her case, as we mentioned, she was kind of on the lam a little bit, like not necessarily using the normal resources of her family for whatever reasons I won't even speculate on. I do have opinions on what might have happened, but I'm not going to mention them here because, again, we don't want to jump to conclusions. But she was on her own. An unfortunate situation happened, but as far as the law enforcement point of view, they kind of had to assume it was a homicide because how often does that happen the way it did? It turns out she she set a campfire, fell asleep in a sleeping bag next to the campfire, and accidentally set it on fire. And she woke up on fire, and she was running to the highway, and she was overcome. Tragic accident, of course. 
But they thought for 38 years this was a homicide. Almost four decades. And a fluke accident, and, and she was found like 50 yards from her equipment and, and possessions, obviously. But again, 40 years almost it took them to figure out that she just accidentally set herself on fire by sleeping too close to her. The fire she set to keep warm. Now, in regards to the phone call in which her mother had, quote, extenuating circumstances that she... Jane Doe, we're ta- or Amy Yeary, we're talking about again. Amy, Amy, Amy Yeary's phone call to her mother, the last known communication that we've had with her. She called her mother, and according to police, she said she was in Beloit, and she had, quote, extenuating circumstances, the mother did, that she couldn't get to her. Okay. N- not going to pass judgment on that. She it sounds kind of... She couldn't get to you her. Gotta, you got to kind of question mother's motives, but again, we don't know. Maybe they don't trust her. Maybe they don't believe her. Maybe she's lying to them, or maybe they just don't, you know, maybe they've given up just to give her some tough love. 100%. And you know what? You know, at the same time, she's 18 years old. But it, and it you, is your daughter that You've raised a child. To, right. If your child calls you and says, I'm in a different state... And I need help. My parents have done that for me. If if I can't go get that person, my child, I'm going to say, I'm going to find somebody who can, and you're going to stay in constant contact with me until I know you're in the car on the way home. Unless you have a situation where you just don't trust that person anymore for some reason. Now, again, in, in, in her sister's Facebook page, she talks about this call. And she says that her last known, quote, this is her sister talking, Quote, her last known place was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, when she called my mom. Now, the police tell us it was in Beloit. She also, the sister also has a post on here saying that... Which when, isn't that far from Milwaukee. Well, it's, but it's, it's not, not the Milwaukee. same city. No, it's not. She also has a post on here when she said her mother told the police it was Madison. And her sister said my mother was confused. It there wasn't Madison. There is some Madison. distance between those cities. It's Milwaukee. So we have three different cities. And there is some distance between Madison and those other two especially. So the sister said she was in Milwaukee, not Beloit, which the police say. Her last known place was in Milwaukee when she called my mom wanting a ride, and my mom had a bad transmission and couldn't not get to her. My sister called her a bitch and said she was in trouble, and she hated her family, and we would never see her again. We have not heard or seen her since. We would like closure into knowing if she is dead or alive. We cannot find jail records, Facebook, or anything that comes up that she exists. So this is on the Facebook page that the sister put up when she was still missing that is still up and active today, and that statement is still on the About page of the Facebook page. So there's discrepancies there about where her last known place was. And I also read that she came from a quote-unquote broken home and that the siblings were split apart. And again, this this is speculation is from what I've read. But then Amy then went to live with her grandmother in Illinois. And I don't know how much of that is truth or not, but these are the stories that have come up as a result. So we might not ever know exactly what was going on within the family, as I said. And I don't believe we're in any position to judge. It would just be nice to have some of these details so they could figure out what possibly happened to cause her death. You're right. And, you know, this is one, as as parents ourselves, we have to bite our tongue a little bit. You know, because she was, quote, oftentimes transient, unquote. She's 18. She's awfully um, young, but we don't know what exactly, she's done right. as a, I know, to I know. the family. It's, it's, right? it's certainly hard to criticize And a, I'm not trying to put it on her, here. but I'm also not trying to victimize the, or to villainize the family and say they, they were not there for her. 
We don't know that they weren't well, and finally had to send her a message. That could have been a possibility. The other issue here is the family never filed a missing report on her. That a is missing kind of sketchy too. Her. Never. They never went to the police and said our daughter's missing. They did create a Facebook page called Help Find Amy. They were searching on their own. And they, they conducted their own search but were obviously unsuccessful. But think about this. The authorities had to come to them with DNA request. The genealogist found them and said, hey, you know what? Are you missing a family member? So they weren't searching real hard. That's but crazy to me. It, it, right. And I, I can't imagine. Thank God. I can't imagine. I mean, and I've got some estranged family member, one or two in my overall family. I think if something were were to come up as far as their death or something, we, we, we would do a search no matter how estranged we are. But things happen. They say blood is thicker than water, but things happen where you just... The person becomes so isolated and, and removed from your life that you just, you feel like you're hopeless and you can't do anything anymore. And I, I believe this might have been what was going on. Because otherwise it sounds like the family just gave up on her. There is, there's two sides to every story. But also think about that if, if they would have filed a missing persons report right away, she would have been identified right away. Sure. Right away. Her, her, her dental records would have come up in no time. Right. And this, this 13 year search. But again, maybe they none. weren't motivated because they were tired of what she'd done. That's I'm not saying that's what happened, but it's a possibility. We we have to look at it from both points of view if we're going to try to figure this out. The family and the girl. Here's the other elephant in the room that doesn't get reported on since she was... It's not a big room to begin with. Well, that doesn't get reported on at all since she was identified. Police thought she was Caucasian. We mentioned this before. Police thought she was Caucasian. A UW-Madison anthropologist said that she was likely Hispanic. Now, in, in one, of the, one of the photo renderings, and the one that you see a lot, she looked Hispanic. And now, obviously, in one of the photos of Amy that you see, there's kind of two. Now that we know you see who she is now, with this right, picture. Now that she's been identified, there's kind of two photos of Amy that you see quite frequently. I think they're both mug shots. I cannot be certain on that, but they look that way. You know, I'm, I'm not judging. I'm just saying. No, but it's they telling. Look like if mug they shot. are mug shots, that's telling right there. In 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 one of the photos, she has long dark hair, and it's obviously dyed because Amy is a fair-skinned blonde. In the in all the photos on Facebook that her photo that her sister posted since she was young, Amy Yuri is a fair-skinned blonde. The isotope testing said she was from the Southwest. And dark-haired. She was from Rockford, Illinois. She only lived in this region for less than a year. The isotope testing said she lived here her whole life. Are we not to talk about this? Are we not to talk about how the forensic testing on this? was not only wrong, it wasn't even close. Well, and I mean, again, their point of view needs to be understood, too. They're doing the best they can. But as we discovered in the Walter Ellis case and in a couple other sense, a lot of times execution, not the highest level. So, yeah, some of these conclusions they led, they, they found actually led them on a wild goose chase in, in an opposite direction that probably caused the case to last a lot longer than it should have. So, yeah, there's there's some scrutiny that should be had there. I, I understand that, too. 600,000 people a year go missing in this country. 600,000 people go missing every year. 4,500 bodies 
unidentified bodies are found every year. 4,500 unidentified bodies are found every year. How many of those investigators are wasting their time looking for a bone collector in Albuquerque instead of focusing on where the crime happened 1,400 miles away, if there was a crime committed at all? So, here. yeah, so with the technology being what it is, it's great. But if if it's leading into to wild goose chases and, and to totally opposite directions, it kind of defeats the purpose. So there is something to be said for that too, obviously. Now, again, to Fond du Lac's credit, Fond du Lac deserves all the credit in this. They didn't do the isotope testing. They didn't do these digital renderings. Fond du Lac worked They tried to get help off. from Texas who, exactly. did, who didn't give them any cooperation. Fond du Lac deserves every bit of credit for finding out who this person was without even the help of her family. For a county that probably doesn't deal with this kind of scenario very often. And to their credit, they still have not ended this. They're still trying to find out what happened to her. So it comes down to individuals, it kind of is what we're saying, right? I mean, no matter how much technology you have and, and people want to do their best, you assume if they're in law enforcement, but people are people. Some people are more diligent and want to do what's right and what's best. And some people maybe slack off a little more than they they possibly should doing that kind of job. Fond du Lac says that they always have testing going on, which is in, very interesting. Like, what what are like? Is there further DNA testing going on? This is what I'm fascinated with. Are they still? Is it possible that they could extract DNA that is not Amy Yuri's from that body yet? I just from those bones. Is it possible? You know, we're talking touch DNA here, which and you know, Mickey and I had said. In, in a couple of episodes that, you know, with the use of DNA, the way they're finding different ways to utilize it, if you get caught, if your DNA is on somebody, you're dead in the water. I think what, what we were mainly getting a hold of there is, is fluid DNA, blood, semen, things that aren't easily transferred, right? And we actually, a listener uh, reached out to us, a good buddy of mine said that, you know, in, in, in regards to touch DNA or trace DNA, you know, you need to be a little bit careful about that. And he's 100% right. Because touch DNA is easily transferable, and this is the, the you know this these are the things that you know they have a conundrum with in DNA right now. You mean is, even a little kid coming along and just touching the any, a, any, a, a crime scene might screw everything up. Of course, we're we're so specific. An innocent child course, coming along, right? We're so specific now in the DNA that they're extracting from things that we're going back to the actual. They're pulling DNA from the actual people that are working in the manufacturing plants of items. We're almost defeating the purpose that, a little bit, right? We've advanced so much in DNA, and in the term, in in, in regards to touch DNA and trace DNA, th- those are things that we need to be very careful. It's it's how Stephen Avery is trying to get off right now. Well, it's his, just a testament to even one with of his appeals, and even even with all the resources and technology and the advancement of all of that, we still have to do our due diligence and be responsible, and not just launch to conclusions as as human beings tend to do. You can't take it for granted. You still have to make sure that it's accurate with whatever processes are necessary to do that. They're, they're, uh, I mentioned Avery in, in a little bit. They're using the touch DNA that was found at the scene. So they found blood on her car, on Teresa Hallbuck's car. And now Avery is saying that that blood was, which is his blood, you know, was was planted, but no, it's not not the police anymore. It was planted by a third party who actually everybody plants evidence against Stephen Avery. So right? he's a politician, and right, he but, changes his story to whatever way he needs but, to. But but they're utilizing the fact that touch DNA can be easily transferred and debunked. You know, if you can muddy it up enough to obviously try to create reasonable doubt. There's a wonderful podcast, and this is, you know, I know this is a little bit off, but there's a great podcast. It's called Suspect. 
there's two seasons of it. The first season is about this. It's about, you know, there there somebody gets brought up on a murder charge and basically by utilizing touch and trace DNA. And it's it's how it, there's a lot of there's some issues I have with the podcast, but I fully recommend it. Listen to it. I want everybody to listen to these podcasts because I think they're informative and I think people learn from them. Drive their numbers up. Listen to it. And, and, and again, as far as Stephen Avery, we're not trying to pass judgment, but there are questions that should be asked, that will be asked, and we will ask those questions. We won't necessarily answer them. We'll try to. We'll give our opinions. But again, we're not trying to pass judgment. We're trying to understand, and I think that's what people should be doing more in general. A, a super interesting part of this is that we are... Let me talk to you a little bit about what happens in, in, in Suspect. And I just want to draw a little picture for you to understand how easily this can happen. There, so a, a woman winds up dead in a party. I don't need to get totally specific about it. And I don't mean to gross you out or be, or be too crass. Yeah, because we don't do that on this, right. episode, on but this podcast. At the scene and you know, dealing with the victim, obviously, a tampon was removed. Okay, so they're looking at sexual assault for obvious reasons, right? On the string of the tampon, they found the DNA of three unknown males. They know everybody that was at the party. On the string of the tampon, they found three DNA profiles of unknown males. Again, the notion is that this goes back to the manufacturing plant of Kotex or, or Tampax or whoever made the tam. This is how ridiculous we're getting Sponsored with DNA. By. Right. Well, maybe we can hit them up. But there is one thing that... So listen to that pod. It's called Suspect. Um, it's season one. I have issues with it, obviously. Have you ever talked about it before? No, never. Because I'll take, start take listening a look, to Take it. a listen to it. So one super interesting thing about where we're going with DNA here, and which I don't know could possibly come back to this case, is there's something called eDNA, environmental DNA, which is basically floating DNA. They're pulling human DNA samples out of water. I didn't even think this was possible before. So now where, where this comes from is they're searching for, it's very interesting to me. Like long after the body's been in the water? Yes, yes. So it's confusing. They're, they're searching, this. what they're trying to perfect this in is they're searching for American pilots who were shot down off the coast of Japan in World War II. So they're finding... They'll the, be applying this to the Bermuda Triangle at some point, and even the M Michigan if Triangle. If this works, which it looks like it's going to be, right. they're going to be applying it everywhere. And the Michigan imagine. Triangle, which is our last episode. Of course. The so they're they're using this. They're finding the wreckage, but there's no body there, obviously, right? So they don't know, was the body destroyed by you know sea life did they did they eject and they're somewhere else so they're they're trying they're trying to to pull human dna out of the water 80 years after the that's wreckage amazing. went in the ocean that's how advanced our technology and this is, is being spearheaded by of course why else do we do this podcast scientists historians and genealogists from uw madison Working, with the, federal, Wisconsin, working baby. with the federal government off the coast of Japan, trying to perfect floating DNA. So there are a lot of Germans here in our state, and those guys are as, en as engineering-oriented as anybody in the planet. So I'm just saying, that's why we're so smart here in this state, so, even though we're psychoed. So is it, is, it, I want, is it possible? Did they have the wherewithal when they collected this body? Did they keep the water? Did they keep Why the would ice? you think of that? Even, right. Like well, you said. maybe a chunk of it. Maybe if there's something frozen. Well, they, the etym etymologists, like you said, kept the insects that right. were frozen in the water to figure out what season. If they still have that, they probably still have the remaining water. If wow, 
So are, you know, is this being done in investigations anywhere? Are, you know, bodies found in water? You can't leave the body in the water, obviously. Are you keeping the water around where the body was found for this future possibility? So now criminals have to realize it's a bad dumping site. Well, and, and then obviously you have the trouble where you have with touch DNA. What if you take a leak in a water and your DNA washes yeah. up on a dead body? That you know, are you, you know, now responsible for that? So I'm obviously, not, I'm not proud of this, but I do brag about it. My dad and I were next to Loch Ness and had to go to the bathroom. We showed the monster our monster. Is all I'm saying. So, I mean, if they find something in Loch Ness, and this was years ago, I, I hope they we're might not somehow attached. They might find Mickey Sanders' DNA inside of the Loch Ness. The monster, Loch Ness. Right? <laughs> so th- th- this is what's fascinating to me is is this use of DNA and how they're always looking for ways to find this. And I, I, you know, I think 50 years from now, we can't even fathom how they're going to be utilizing DNA. Well, 10 years, five cost, years from now. Right, right. And Sheriff Ryan Waldschmidt from Fond du Lac County Sheriff's Office said, quote, identifying Amy Yuri is a big step in this complex and very active investigation. However, there is still much work that needs to be done to determine how and why she lost her life. As advancements in DNA, genetic genealogy, and forensic testing continue to evolve, we await results of additional tests currently being performed at forensic laboratories and our hopeful new evidence can be identified, unquote. So what does that tell you? They already, they already know who she is, right? They have no idea what happened to her. Well, not yet. Or at least they're not releasing they're not, it because they're not 100% but sure. But they're they doing can. DNA tests for something, right. and it's not to find her anymore. They know who she is. Right. So are they using the water that she was found in to extract human DNA to find out who placed her there? But again, there's so many questions. Officials are still asking for the public's help in understanding the cause of death, as we mentioned. The, the numbers that to call, if there's any information available from anyone, if you're listening, Please don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Come forward with any information you might have because anything can help. Fond du Lac County Sheriff's Office Detective Ryan Murphy, 920-929-3380. Fond du Lac County Sheriff's Office Lieutenant Christopher Randall is 920-929-3388. And finally, the Fond du Lac County Law Enforcement Tip Line is 920 906 Four seven 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 to leave an anonymous message if you don't want to leave leave your name or just want to give information without getting any kind of credit or notoriety for it. If you know anything, this will help Fond du Lac County out immensely, just to solve this case and help the family and any of her loved ones figure out what happened and get some closure. There are people that know something. People out there right now know what happened to Amy Yuri. Who was she? You know, I, obviously there's there's still things being held back by Fond du Lac. They have the reasons, I understand that. But why? We're, we're not, this is not, you know, we're not in the first 48 hours of a death investigation anymore, right? We're 15 years out. Yeah, right. 48 hours, they say, is important, but we're way beyond that. What, you know, why are they not releasing toxicology reports? Why are they so sure this is a homicide? Again, we just covered something last episode that 38 years they thought it was a homicide. It wasn't. This is... This is within walking distance of Highway 41. It's within a mile of Highway 41. It's within a mile of an off-ramp of Highway 41. How do we know she didn't jump out of a car? How do we know she didn't jump out of a car and fall into that water, which was much higher than it was? A, it was a place where she didn't know. It's in the dark, likely, right? There's water there. How many how many times have we heard stories about uh, college students on UW Oshkosh, UW Lacrosse? 
walking away from bars. They're drunk. They're inebriated, and they wind up dead in Lake Michigan right. or, or Lake Winnebago. They wind up dead on, uh, in the Mississippi River. Right, uh, an assistant coach for the Packers. It happened to his son while he was at uh, Joel Philbin, right. while he was at UW Oshkosh. Walks away from a bar, ends up in Lake Winnebago. Nobody murdered him. Right, and it, I mean whether they're under the influence of alcohol and drugs or not. I mean, people make stupid mistakes sometimes. It doesn't make them criminals. It doesn't make them anything except human beings. And we all are quick to err and make mistakes. So, so they they say there's they have no idea how she passed, but they're adamant it was a homicide. Why? Why can't we know that? The you know the other thing interesting to me is a Saint Benedict pendant. Yeah, a lot of people, you know, a lot of I have a Saint Christopher pendant hanging from my car window, right, or my my mirror. A lot of people put those around to protect the right their protectors. People have them in the cars. They bury them in their front yards to it's protect superstitious their superstitious thing. It's, to well, it's a religious right. thing. It's right. not. I don't know. It's not superstitious. Well, it's, tradi- it's, well, it's, it's faith. With some it's, of that stuff, it's, tra- it's superstition. But whatever, whatever your reasoning, it is that there's a reason you have it. So Saint Christopher is really common. Saint Michael is really common. But I didn't know Saint Benedict. I've, obviously, I've heard of Saint Benedict. But I, that's not a real common pendant for people to be carrying around. So I look into that. And St. Benedict Pendant is, is supposed to be a protector for you as well for a very specific thing. Poison. Is she in recovery? Was she trying to be in recovery? Was she trying to be sober? Was she running away from somebody that didn't want her to be sober? Or did she? was she sober? She fell off maybe one night and it hit her particularly hard, either in her body or on her mind? How do we know this was a homicide? She told her parents they'd never see her again. You know, they said this was, quote, a classic dumping ground, okay? Which is, is just based is it? on speculation. Is it? It's flat? Do they, it's has open? There, has there ever been any other bodies exactly, dumped there? Right. right. So they're just saying, oh, it could be. It's, it's flat. It's open. It's down the street from a 24-hour porn shop right off of a, of a, Highway 41 off ramp. It's kind of isolated, and a, it's and it's in the middle of a sex trafficking triangle, evidently. But you know, if I'm if I'm this person, who you know, think of if you have a body in your trunk and you're you're looking for a place to get rid of it, and you're on Highway 41, are you pulling off there? I'm not. I'm going to probably the Kettle Moraine, which is just to the east of that, which you can find all kinds. Well, there's a lot of history all, there. All kinds. We'll cover a lot of different legends and things going on. In you that will area. bury a body in the Kettle Moraine, and it'll never be found ever. But, but apparently, somebody took this body and just dumped it in a four-inch creek. No, kind of out in the open, to be honest. You know. So I mean, what? What circles did she run in? They say she was a victim of sex trafficking. Okay, what does that mean? Was she being held against her will, or is she a victim of the lifestyle? Is she a victim of the culture? Why don't we know this? Well, and a lot of times, even if they choose to live that lifestyle, it's probably because they don't think too much of themselves, which means something may have happened in their past from some relative or whatever. But They're still a victim, of course. Well, that, they're know? a victim, but possibly they made a choice whether something bad happened to them before that or not. So again, there's just too many questions to, there's, to speculate. There's so many things that I think people need to know here. They're holding, you know, we're holding information for 15 years because, you know, only the real killer will know this stuff. But, you know, you're running the risk of sitting here 15 years from now with the same questions. Just like this woman we talked about in the last episode who ended up just doing it to herself on accident. This this case will catch on in the true crime community. Obviously, the true crime platform is massive. We, we know that. 
We don't have to tell you that. This has already been in podcasts, some smaller podcasts. We're covering it here, obviously. This will get talked about. The information should get out there. If there's anything we can do, you know, we're, the, we're one of the only ones so far that has covered this case. If there's That's anything, why we're giving the numbers If there's anything we can do, if Fond du Lac would, you know, if, if, if they want to utilize us as a platform, you know, can true. we say anything? Can we bring you on and, and give you a platform of people to give this information to? By God, talk to us. Use us as a platform. Do something because, you know, the information about what happened to Amy Yeary, in my opinion, is going to come from law enforcement and it's going to come from crowdsourcing. It's not going to come from the family. It would have already had it was if it was going to. It's not coming from her family. So I think a little more give here from law enforcement who have worked their ass off. And again, as, it's, as we've it's said, not easy. Don't don't and misunderstand. People me need here, to put you know? themselves in their shoes and understand it is not an easy process. And there, there's no way for us commenters to even understand what they have to go all go through. Even just going by TV shows that you watch, it's a tedious, gut wrenching process. They see things that none of us ever have to see. Thank God. So they deserve some credit. Questions should never stop being asked until everything that we need to know is known. And if if there's a little more information that can be given here, again. This has been talked about on Reddit. This has been talked about on Web Sleuths. People are going to catch on to this. And I think a little more give here from law enforcement is appropriate. And while we don't always handle information very well as a whole, human beings, we, we deserve to know some of this, especially her loved ones, whether they seem interested or not. People who want to help deserve to know at least enough that they can do with to help. I just think a little more give here from law enforcement, answer some of these questions that have been kept close to the vest for 15 years. 15 years. Again, there's a community that's willing to help. And I think she deserves that. Amen, brother.